Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we get an update on fires burning in Orange County that have put nearly 100,000 residents under evacuation orders. Then we talk with sociologist and Atlantic contributing writer Zeynep Tufekci, whose warnings about COVID-19 proved prescient and whose ability to see clear patterns in the virus's murky path inspired a New York Times profile with the headline, How Zeynep Tufekci Keeps Getting the Big Things Right. We'll get Tufekci's latest observations on the virus's behavior, her thoughts on what's driving yet another surge in COVID-19 cases, and the role of so-called pandemic fatigue. Forum is next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told CNN Sunday that the U.S. is not going to control the pandemic because it's a contagious virus just like the flu. But the virus behaves very differently from the flu, according to sociologist Zainab Tufekci. And she says the sooner we understand why it tends to spread in big bursts, a la super spreader events, the sooner we can put more targeted preventative practices in place. Early in the pandemic, Tufekci challenged the U.S.'s official line on masks as unnecessary and even harmful if worn incorrectly. And months before the CDC acknowledged airborne transmission of the virus, Tufekci published a piece in The Atlantic hammering the importance of ventilation. Zeynep Tufekci is a University of North Carolina professor of information sciences who specializes in the social effects of technology, also a contributing writer to The Atlantic and the author of Twitter and Tear Gas. Thanks so much for joining us, Zeynep Tufekci. Thank you for inviting me. It was for Twitter and Tear Gas when we last talked in 2017, I think, about how social media-fueled protests um, lack the organizational depth and structures to become big-lasting movements. And so making pandemic recommendations sounds like it was a pretty different uh, direction to go in. You said that you dipped a toe in that water, but it wasn't easy what made you do it back in February for a Scientific American? It feels like a world away, doesn't it, uh, when we were discussing those. So what happened for me in February was that I, I felt like I was in an out-of-body experience, uh, partly because I had been doing research in Hong Kong because of my interest in social movements and technology. So I had a lot of connections to the region. And when the news of a viral pneumonia mystery viral pneumonia started coming out of um, China in early January, end of December, my ears had perked up because while I'm not an epidemiologist, I do teach uh, pandemic sociology because mm. it's such a great way to explain our connected world, network theory, exponential growth, contagion, a lot of things that also play a role in you know, our digital technology and social media. So I used to teach that and I had um, some knowledge of it. So when I started seeing the news, I, um, my ears had perked up. In fact, my like first purchase of masks is January 7th. I went back and checked my <laughs> Amazon mm. orders. That's when I thought, okay, this is something to take into account. And smart. then, uh, well, I, then I wasn't sure. Uh, and then on January 20th, when uh, China shut down the 11 million person city of Wuhan. That's when my um, study and understanding of authoritarian regimes kicked in because one rule is don't look at what they say, look at what they do, right? At that point, China was saying things like, you know, there's no human to human transmission or sustained human to human transmission. No big deal, we got this under control. And then something happened that they shut down a city of 11 million. The Chinese uh, leadership may be authoritarian, but they're not stupid. They're not going to risk their economy and this much over something that little. So uh, when they did that, we thought at that point we had very little science because most of the cases were in China and we weren't getting uh, information out of there. 
when they did that, I thought, all right, here we go. This is a big deal. And I started actually looking to see if there were papers being published. And just a week later, the Chinese authorities started letting their scientists publish, which was, um, they had already been trying to, like the Chinese scientists had been uh, trying to whistleblow and inform us. And there was a lot of effort from that end because uh, they were doing the studies. They were seeing what was happening. So once we started getting the studies, this was like, uh, January 27, 28th, and I started reading them, of course. Um, and the first thing that struck me on January 27th uh, was that the study out of Wuhan was telling us that um, there was a lot of atypical clinical presentation. Now, I had studied SARS as the sociology of it mostly, but of course, I'd read a lot about how we'd managed to contain it and what had happened then with SARS was that the infectious period and fever had coincided. So you could put a temperature gun on you know, somebody's face at an airport and catch them just as they were infectious. Whereas now the scientists from China were telling us that people who weren't necessarily feverish or very sick were infecting, transmitting. And uh, we had already had these unexplained cases. We had a case in Thailand in January, I think 13th, 14th, uh, from a woman who had never been to the seafood market. So at that point, I thought, all right, we're going to get hit. Like we, we know the Chinese government thinks we're going to get hit. They shut down the whole city. We have these scientific papers saying that uh, we can't just, you know, use temperature guns, that there is transmission from people who are not necessarily aware even they're sick and we've had millions of people fly all over the place and we have right. human to human transmission so i thought all right let's get ready and at that point i'm still not thinking of any role for myself except lamenting that oh i probably can't go to hong kong ordering hand sanitizer canceling travel uh getting ready like i spent a big chunk of early february getting all my medical stuff out of the way because i thought you know if we get hit with a pandemic hospitals will be overwhelmed so i did my checkups it filled my prescriptions and i'm just waiting um for our authorities to sort of tell us what to do right uh because it seems so clear and all of february i just looked around and i thought which I'm not sure I'm in the same planet with everyone else because like locally, and I live in Chapel Hill, we have uh, three big major universities within like a few miles. Uh, we have University of North Carolina, we have uh, Duke University, we have NC State, we have you know, a fairly educated population. And I was looking around and people were still discussing trips, travel, conferences. And I was reading like New York Times, Washington Post, all these places, places I've written myself. And I was reading op-eds titled Beware of the Pandemic Panic. Uh, I was reading Bloomberg opinion pieces by, you know, Harvard professors saying this is excessive fear because people aren't, people aren't rational necessarily. Like I was, it was being treated like just alarmism. Yes. And everybody was like telling each other, I would be on a Facebook group and people would be asking, should we go to this trip? Should we have this conference? And they would pass these pieces along saying, sure, you know, live your life. Don't be alarmist. And I wanted to have a piece saying, no, pandemics are a fundamental feature of human history. We get them all the time. This one looks like we're going to get hit. And when we do get hit, hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. That's what happened in Wuhan. Uh, we already started having, you know, the crisis in Lombardy, like it's right there happening in front of us. We have two major examples. So I needed a piece to give to people to say, we got to get ready. We got to flatten the curve so that the hospitals aren't overwhelmed. We got to protect the elderly, which we already knew were vulnerable. We got to arrange for remote work. We got to, you know, if you need a microphone, you need to buy that now. I, I wanted that piece and couldn't find it. So I wrote it, I wrote a blog post to Scientific American and I just typed it up. I said, look, it's not alarmism. It's not just something for preppers who have bunkers in Montana. We're gonna get hit with a pandemic and we need to get ready as soon as possible because how we respond is part of how bad it gets. So I wrote the piece and uh, my uh, editor at the time, he had welcomed his first grandchild just as I was writing it. He didn't have great connectivity. I thought, you know, I, I sent it and I thought he'd send me some suggestions or anything. He just put it up, which was 
both mice, it had typos in it because it was just went up. Uh, he had a cute bundle in his hand uh, that he was more busy with, understandably. Yes. And then the piece went viral um, because what I realized was that it wasn't just me who was waiting for that piece to share with other people, but there were lots of people who both realized that we were not being properly informed. And I don't mean just from this administration. There's no doubt this administration has failed uh, gravely. Like I have no excuses to make for them, but whatever else their failings, the rest of society, like everything else wasn't stepping up to say, you know what, the administration may be muzzling the CDC or not letting us know what's going on or informing us or doing its job. You still have to get ready. You still have to get ready for remote work. Right. And the tech industry was actually better. So in your part of the world, there was more early action, but we needed like a guideline saying, this is what you got to do. Very practical. So I wrote that. It went viral. It got shared by like Hillary Clinton and many other people. And I thought, whoa, this is good. I did something. And to this day, it's very gratifying. I hear from people saying, you know, I use that to get ready. I told my parents to stop traveling. I didn't, you know, go to a conference. So that's good. So I thought I'm done. <laughs> this is like, it's not going to end like that. But I thought, all right, you know, this is a one-off thing. I happen to be the one, as far as I can tell, it's the first mention of flattening the curve, explaining it in a mainstream media outlet. I mean, it's not my concept. These are very well-known concepts in epidemiology. I was just explaining the basics that you know much then i said all right i'm done um i went back to sort of um i was prepared by then i knew you know i was ready to stay home i was ready for um like i had done my um infrastructure so to speak um and then one of the things i linked to in my piece for getting ready was what to purchase and it included a, li a, a list that said masks. Now, in the piece, I kind of, by then, masks were kind of sold out. And I kind of say, well, if you can't find it, don't worry about it, because that wasn't what it was about. But the list I linked to, uh, which was a reasonable list, listed masks. And then I got this pushback from public health people who started telling me masks are harmful. They're not useful. And... That was my second out-of-body experience. I was like, how? You know, well, how are they help? Like, I understand if you want to say we're not 100% certain how well they'll work. But at this point, um, we already had a lot of evidence of asymptomatic or presymptomatic transmission as well. So I was just baffled. I was like, please help me explain because I don't want to do harm. Like, explain to me how masks are harmful. So uh, the answers I got were nonsensical to incoherent. I, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm just being blunt here. I was told things like people would touch the outside of their mask. Right, like as if it was almost more harmful uh, potentially right. to have people wear masks, especially if they wore them incorrectly. And as I understand it, that ended up actually being, your piece about that ended up being kind of a tipping point for the CDC to start changing its it guidance did. and recommending so, masks. And Zainab, in fact, you were actually coming up on a break right now, but we'll, but stay with us, of course. We'll have more with yes, you after the it's break. It's a crazy world, yeah. It is. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. We'll have more. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We turn now to get a quick update on wind-driven wildfires in Orange County that broke out yesterday. They've injured two firefighters and now forced nearly 100,000 residents to flee their homes. We're joined by Jason Fairchild, the fire captain and public information officer for Orange County Fire Authority. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. It's, uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I understand the larger of the blazes in Orange County is the Silverado fire. What can you tell us about the status of that fire? Yeah, currently the fire is reported at 11,200 acres. Uh, we have over 750 firefighters currently battling the fire. And that has in a large area over, uh, we have um, 76,000 people under evacuation wow. in the cities of Irvine and Lake Forest. Now, currently, we have no structures lost on that fire, so we 
consider that a very successful firefight. Um, but we do have the two firefighters that, that were injured and are in critical condition as a result of fighting that fire. And so that makes it a little harder to uh, swallow as far as uh, the success of the fire right now because uh, losing, you know, having two of our own injured on the fire is really unacceptable. We don't want anybody to get hurt. Yes, I have heard it described as gravely injured or that they were severely burned. Is that the case? Uh, I don't know what the extent of their injuries are or what specifically their types of injuries were. I know that there were um, significant burn injuries on both of them, and um, they're they're currently being treated at the hospital. Both of them are with their families, mm. and the fire chief spent the night with them as well and with the families. And so uh, they're part of our family. They're part of the fire family, and we are really want to make sure that they're taken care of and doing the best that they can and that's been hard. It's certainly on the mind of all the firefighters that are here today fighting the fire. And um, it's it's hard for us anytime anybody gets injured or hurt, uh, whether they're firefighters or civilians in the areas that we're protecting. We're thinking of them, too. I, uh, I know that the cause of this fire is under investigation, but there are reports that Southern California Edison is wondering whether its electrical equipment may have started this. Can you tell us anything about what you're learning there? Uh, I don't know uh, what the cause of the fires are. Um, both of them are basically started within a few hours of each other. Uh, both of them are currently still under investigation, and uh, we certainly have uh, fire investigators that will be looking into all different causes and making sure that we uh, figure out where and why these started. Yes. The other fire is the Blue Ridge Fire. That started a little bit later than the Silverado Fire. What can you tell us about that in terms of acreage and whether it's threatening populated areas? Blue Ridge Fire is currently at 8,000 acres. We have 0% containment on that. And I didn't mention we do have 5% containment on the Silverado Fire. So we did we did get some containment overnight with our night dropping uh, helicopters. We were able to use three of them overnight on that fire. Um, as far as the Blue Ridge Fire goes, yes, 8,000 acres, 0% containment. We did have uh, reports that there are 10 structures that were damaged by that fire, and it, those were in the city of Yorba Linda. Um, mm-hmm. The fire is currently moving right around Yorba Linda and then in the direction of the city of Chino Hills as well as the city of Brea. Uh, we have uh, over 1,000 homes evacuated on that fire as well, and a large number of firefighters currently fighting the fire. And are conditions any better today so that firefighters can make headway? We know that the winds really whipped up these fires. How are conditions on the ground now? Well, we're still getting some winds, and we still have that red flag warning in effect until approximately 6 p.m. tonight. Um, But the winds today are significantly improved from what we saw yesterday. Uh, We are getting sustained winds of 10 to 15 miles per hour with gusts of up to 35 miles per hour. And um, that's that's significantly better than yesterday. Yesterday, we were unable to use a lot of the aircraft to fight the fire because of the winds. Today, we have 14 firefighting helicopters in place and fighting the two fires currently. Um, So compared to the three that we were able to use at certain hours yesterday, uh, the 14 is is considerably better, and we're able to fly those because the winds are at a lower wind speed today. Well, best of luck to you, Jason Fairchild. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. Jason Fairchild, Fire Captain and Public Information Officer for Orange County Fire Authority. We return now to talking about the rising cases of COVID-19 across the country and the prospects for getting the pandemic under control. We're talking with Zainab Tufekci, Associate Professor at the School of Information and Library Science at UNC and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. And Zainab Tufekci, just before the break, we were talking about how this all began, um, and boy, were we hit. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and, got, like, so finally what happened was, as you pointed out, I just couldn't make sense of what the experts at the time were saying. And I um, reluctantly, you know, after waiting a couple of weeks, hoping somebody else would write it, ended up writing the piece that I've since learned, like according to New York Times, was uh, a tipping point in creating the momentum within the CDC to finally get that update. And then I thought, all right, I'm done, done now. I'm not going to write another word about the pandemic <laughs> because, um, you know, I 
too is more than I should. But again, I was connected to, you know, the um, because of my connections to Hong Kong, I also was looking at what was happening in Japan, in South Korea, in Hong Kong, where they have experience with SARS, right? They have experience uh, and they have top-notch epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists. And I, I was just baffled because our practice, not just in the US, also in Europe, did not seem to reflect all the knowledge, all the expertise, all the science that was coming out of there and had come out of there before. And by then we had a lot of papers um, saying that most of the spread was uh, indoors and also in clusters. And from sociology, like just thinking about it sociologically, uh, I, I was seeing that there was a lot of beaches that were being shut down, parks that were being shut down. People were being told not to go outdoors at all, despite, you know, lack of transmission outdoors or clusters or you know any of that and i knew that if you do that people are going to socialize indoors out of your view so if you scold them for being in a park or a beach which is much safer you're not going to get them to go sit at home by themselves especially young people who can transmit uh, without getting too sick themselves so they're mobile right they're running around as little germ factories for this you know like 20s 30s and I thought this is wrong. We really should not like this is something we understand in epidemiology, which is the sociology of this is that you provide what we call harm reduction. Uh, and in this particular case, given how we just didn't have outdoor transmission in the record, it's not that it's impossible. Like you could right. pant in somebody's face from a close distance and you could presumably infect them that way, but it's really hard because you have to get close and pant in their face and be in your contagious uh, stage and sunlight inactivates the virus. There's a lot more air, like compared to indoors. Right. It's right? extremely rare, yeah. It's extremely, it's less likely. And also in a beach, like beaches are big places. Even if you get really crowded, like it's hard to get within like three, four feet of someone wearing a bikini, some stranger. And currently the World Health Organization guidelines for um, that kind of spread is like three feet, right? So you, even if you get crowded and that people would say, well, what about the uh, cafes around the beach? And I'm like, then talk about the cafes. I mean, part of the problem with the mask guidance was that we didn't treat the public like adults. We didn't tell them there's a shortage. We screwed up but the healthcare workers need it more. We're gonna fix this as soon as we can. In the meantime, we're gonna wear cloth masks, which are fairly good for helping prevent transmission to others, which is the point, right? So we didn't like tell the truth, which wasn't you know pleasant, but it was perfectly functional and cloth masks are fine for preventing the onward transmission. Yes. So I thought I gotta write a piece saying, you know what we know about like from HIV, from other diseases, we don't tell people not to do anything. We tell them what's safe and what's less safe in an honest way. Yes, um, so I wrote a thing about the parks and outdoors don't close them. And it didn't really work. <laughs> partly because the um, science of the transmission dynamics, that it was spreading through the air, that it was sort of, um, it's a respiratory illness, right? That uh, aerosols played a role, that indoors was dangerous because of lack of ventilation, which meant the virus could waft around or even accumulate. It wasn't getting through. And the World Health Organization wasn't, uh, didn't have that in their guidelines. To this day, they still don't have fully updated guidelines. They have some, you know, additions, but still lagging. It's incredible. It's October. Um, CDC did not, you know, if you went to them, it said, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, which is fine. But we were already seeing a lot of evidence that fomites, like things there, that wasn't really touching things, wasn't really driving the pandemic. Washing hands is a great idea. Like it's a great idea for a million reasons, including this one, but it wasn't replacing, you know, understanding the importance of ventilation. So I thought, okay, you know what, I've written so much. Um, I'm going to sit down and do something that a lot of journalists can't do. Because I'm an academic, not just like a journalist who's writing a piece a day or anything like that. And I said, I'm going to sit down 
I'm going to read all the papers, I'm going to talk all the experts, and what I'm going to try to do is explain why keep the parks open, keep the beaches open, tell people to open the windows, you know, put the HEPA filter if uh, there's no other option, upgrade the filters, uh, change the AC settings in big buildings, right? There's, there's a transmission dynamics that the public deserves a long explanation. That's not like just go read the papers. It can't just be trust the experts. Experts aren't telling us like CDC and the WHO aren't telling us what they should be telling us. So I ended up writing a lengthy piece on um, ventilation, ventilation yeah. and airborne transmission and aerosol uh, at the end of July. Um, and Zainab and, did actually, yeah. yeah. that's weird, but I did because I mean, it was something I, that I think the public needed to understand and hear in depth. And again, came at an important time and against the grain, really, of what we were generally hearing. I, I do want to ask you about your latest piece, which is another aspect of the coronavirus that we might not be understanding that well and planning effectively around. And that is the fact that it seems to spread, as you say, in these big clusters, in these big groups. And we're hearing about these super spreader events. Can you talk about about what the behavior uh, of the coronavirus as in these big bursts of illness, what that tells you about how we should actually be addressing this or how we should be targeting the way that we're addressing it or modifying what we're doing now. So um, the, if you look at the literature, what you see is that unlike the flu, which doesn't behave really like this, um, the, this particular pathogen is what people call uh, overdispersed, which basically mm. means it's something like people might know as the 80-20 rule. It's the same idea in that um, most people barely transmit, right? People get infected, but the transmission chains die out kind of on their own. Maybe, you know, according to some studies, 70, upwards of 70, 80% of people barely infect you know, maybe one person, maybe zero, very often it's zero. But then we have these events where one person will infect a large number of people. And if you look at the, it's kind of a, it's still to be understood exactly why that happens. But we have something really important, which is that it almost always happens in crowded, close contact indoors. Right. So uh, the Japanese uh, epidemiologists call that the three C's, you know, crowds, close contact. Uh, and often there's talking, singing uh, involved. And uh, so when you understand that, that gives you an important set of tools for how to deal with this. One of the things that's really important is limit indoors as much as possible. And to the degree that people must be indoors, they must wear masks when speaking. I see so many events where the speaker is the person taking off their mask, which is the exact yes. opposite of what you would need to do. Like that's the person emitting those aerosols, right? That's the turn it around. Uh, you can't open gyms indoors. It's just like we just had a, another major outbreak in Ontario because people are panting. Like, and what they do is they make people come into the gym, apparently in Ontario, Canada, and then you go into the gym wearing your uh, mask and then you take off your mask to exercise and you know their outbreak is I think like 60 70 people now that's not, that the science is not like that so there's this um, way in which uh, targeting events that create those clusters yeah. is really important it also has implications for how to trace like when we trace we often right now the practical way we trace is we try to find the onward transmission, you know, who did you see since becoming infected? Whereas the reality is mathematically, you need to go back first. You need to try to find where they got infected because since most people aren't transmitting onwards, right? That's not the key. The key there is you can just try to prevent clusters everywhere by attacking the conditions. But if you find an infected person, what you really need to try to see is if they're part of a cluster, go back, find where they're infected, and then go forward from there. Because if they were infected at a gym, there's gonna be other infected people there. That's just the way the math works. Because if there's one transmission event, 
there are others, the events are clustered together. So there's all these things. And I happen to write that piece. It's also another, you know, 5,000 word Atlantic piece. And um, I happened to write that couple days before the super spreader event in uh, the White House. Um, and um, that was partly coincidence. And partly, I have to say, um, they were due, right? The way they were acting, they were going to get hit. The only thing they think the real question is how they managed to avoid it till um, October, given how reckless they've been. And I think the answer there is actually quite interesting. The way the, the reason White House got so lucky despite pushing their luck as hard as they, they possibly could, you know, constantly getting together, not wearing masks, all the thing is the rapid testing. Ah, even right? though Which it's also, not accurate, even though it's not well, 100% accurate, fine, it's though. better it than have nothing. To be hung, it's, I mean, in fact, people are saying, look, they did rapid testing and it failed. And I want to say it's exactly the opposite conclusion is true, that they poke this virus in the eye, so to speak, as hard as possible for seven months <laughs> and got away with it for seven months because they had those um, rapid tests, which, as you point out, are low sensitivity. But if you do them all the day, all, you know, all the time, every day, you know, repeatedly, you're going to catch it eventually. Like even if you don't catch that person the first day, you're going to mm -hmm. catch him the next day. Also, you're going to catch it if there's an outbreak. And with such tests, the important thing is there, uh, people are misunderstanding what those tests are good for. They're not for, like, if you're going to go have a surgery yourself in a hospital, that's not the test you need, because there, the point is to see if you're positive and to take precautions. So that's a diagnostic test. Rapid tests are a way of doing surveillance on the population to get the disease under yes. control for all of us. And their speed, like you get it back in 15 minutes, uh, I would rather have all the speed. Uh, plus, if anything, the PCR tests we use are they're a little too sensitive. They'll, they, they can find the virus viral RNA signature. They can find it for weeks because you're shedding it. You're no longer infectious, but there's some left in your lungs or your body. Whereas these tests catch you if you have a higher load, which is what you want for the population control aspect. So, so yeah, so I wrote, yeah. Yeah, so interesting because what I'm hearing you say about an overdispersed virus like this is that it can help you more target the places that you close. Uh, it can also really has implications for using these kinds of rapid tests as well as inform the way that we're tracing. We'll have more with Zeynep Tufekci after the break and we'll take your questions. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Atlantic Contributing Opinion writer Zeynep Tufekci and also an associate professor at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Zeynep Tufekci, she has written a recent piece about why the coronavirus spreads in big bursts and that the sooner we can put more targeted preventative practices in place, the sooner we can get a handle on this pandemic. What are your questions for Zeynep Tufekci? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. Six seven eight six. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. William writes, does your guests have thoughts on the recent British study that showed evidence of waning immunity to COVID-19 and how that affects the notion of herd immunity? Zainab Tufekshi, we've been hearing herd immunity a lot, especially even from the White House coronavirus advisor, Dr. Scott Atlas. What are your thoughts on William's question? And, you know, the effectiveness of herd immunity? Um, so herd immunity, I think, is pretty widely misunderstood here. Um, the idea, I think the idea that we could get to effective herd immunity is a little misleading because what people are saying when they argue for herd immunity, they're looking at places that they think there is, you know, say 10, 20% infection rate and assuming that's herd immunity because you're seeing sort of slight dampening. Now, if you 
did really have, you know, 10, 20% sufficient for protecting everyone, that could be a reasonable discussion. But I think what's happening is two things. Uh, the places that have um, dampened transmission after 10, 20% infection rate could be having um, two things happening. One of them is this virus is seasonal. We've never been through a December. Uh, we've never been through winter with it really in the Northern hemisphere. So it's too early to think that. And the second thing is that um, we're doing what people, the epidemiologists call non-pharmaceutical interventions in that lots of people are actually distancing and preventing um, transmission by wearing masks and they're being extra careful. So instead of herd immunity, we have a combination of, yes, I'm sure, you know, some you know, more people being immune helps dampen the transmission, but we're also trying really hard to dampen it. So if it's not herd immunity at 10, 20%, then we have to look at what does it mean to get to a number that would be meaningful herd immunity in that it would really stop transmission the way, for example, we can have measles outbreaks really kind of not happen a lot if we, um, the measles is very contagious, like if we, even with flu, like 60, 70% immunity would really help with uh, dampening it. But to get to that level with this virus, and if the uh, fatality rate is like 1%, half a percent, that means a large number of deaths, an enormous amount of suffering. It would mean overloaded hospitals. And also a lot of times proponents of herd immunity say, you know, let the young get infected and we'll, you know, protect the elderly who are very vulnerable. But, and then there's a lot of hand-waving on how that is going to happen. I'm, I'm like, how are we going to completely protect the elderly? And in this particular case, the thing really spikes up after 70, but people 50, 60, there's like, it's just kind of starts going up there. How are we going to do that for maybe another year? And further, how are we going to do that knowing that even though the survival rate for younger people is gotten much better, that's because we have better clinical practice and therapeutics, which means people who are hospitalized. So how are we going to hospitalize that many people? Yes. So I, I mean, it's, I don't like the thing is what's happened is it's become impossible to have this discussion because as soon as people say herd immunity, somebody else comes and says, do you want to kill grandma? And I don't think it's fair. I think we should really look hard at the evidence. And my conclusion from like seeing how these things come together is that uncontrolled spread would give us an enormous amount of suffering and death and not really prevent what we're trying to prevent in the first place, which is especially the vulnerable populations getting hit hard, as opposed to what we should be doing, which is to, you know, sort of discuss that trade-off where we do the most bang for buck intervention. So before we discuss herd immunity, which again will cost an enormous amount, we would have, you know, hospitals overrun. Like it's not something you can just do cheaply. Um, we should discuss things like, you know, mass testing, the rapid testing, better masks, uh, you know, sort of the indoor stuff that a lot of indoor stuff is open partly because people need to make a living. Why don't we just pay them so they don't have to go to work and, you know, we can sort of try to pay to have, you know, outfit the yes. outdoor. So that's what I think is like, we should have this discussion. Uh, it's kind of a little too complicated to quickly say something. And my sense is that it just doesn't look either humane, ethical, or easier than things that are available to us that we're not doing. Right. Uh, let me go to Amelie in Mountain View. Hi, Amelie. What's your question for Zainab Tepekti? Hi. My question is I'm currently reading the book Twitter and Tear Gas that she's written, and I wanted to know if... Uh, she sees any parallels between the authoritarian regime she writes about in the book and the Trump administration, especially when it comes to the administration's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm, thanks, Amelie. So that's a great question. Um, I actually see um, something really similar between what the Chinese authorities fumbled in the beginning, but then got their act together later, uh, in fairness. And what the Trump administration failed is that it's anybody who's worked anywhere knows this is called managing up. 
if you don't set it up so that people can tell you the truth and if you set it up so you incentivize people telling you everything is great and everything's going to be great people will tell you everything's great and everything's going to be great that's what happens in authoritarian regimes i think we have a lot of evidence right now that um, the Chinese authorities in the first 20 days or so, the local Wuhan authorities lied and covered up what was really going on. And then the China, the central government ended up sending their own scientists and they're like, oh no, this is terrible. And that's when they shut down Wuhan. They kind of had to overreact to make up for the authoritarian blindness that their regime has fostered, right? That, that's what they set up, but when they realized that they reacted. So with the Trump administration, you sort of see a similar thing in that you get the sense that everybody around our president is managing up and saying he's the greatest, he's best, wonderful, uh, it's fantastic, uh, the best virus uh, defense ever, which of course it's not, right? It's not, so you end up failing even further, whereas even this administration, like assuming that they were interested in getting reelected, right, it would have been to their benefit, just sort of selfishly speaking, and like just trying to put uh, from their point of view, to be more realistic early on and say, okay, this is terrible, and we are going to be the ones that do the proper intervention, rather than saying, just sort of denying mm. to this day like he's on the rallies right now saying it's going to be great it's going to be great and you can talk uh like you can do ideological intervention like that but the virus doesn't care what you say at your rally and people can see what's going on around them so that's why i think it's just not working as well for them well this listener tweets how can we better direct the public conversation around things like the extremely provocative mask wearing doesn't help claim? I mean, as you said, Zainab Tufekci, we haven't even been able to do the simple things right before we even start having this conversation about herd immunity. What are your thoughts to this listener's question about how to how to improve the conversation around mask wearing? So I think one of the things that would really help is to um, realize that a lot of people are confused for good reason. One, our messaging was muddled. And then in the United States, it became this ideological battle, right? It became this um, kind of polarized thing. And from whatever research we've always had, shaming people and polarizing people does not really help. It just entrenches people. Um, like just acknowledging that there's a screw up and there's some confusion and then trying to understand why and how people aren't wearing masks and trying to communicate, you know, rather than um, you know, just trying to sort of call them COVID idiots or something, mm. I think is more helpful. In fact, I see this in social media, like there'll be some person throwing a tantrum in a supermarket because they didn't want to wear a mask and it just gets, goes viral. But if you look at the polls, the majority of Americans in a lot of places are wearing masks. So instead of, um, but, they're not all wearing masks. Instead of sort of shaming the random rare tantrum, we should try to understand why haven't we managed to convince people and understand that it is a failure of public health messaging that includes this administration, you know, absolutely, but not just. Yes. <laughs> uh, there was a wider screw up and try to sort of be honest about it. I think what we're seeing is that because of the way things are going in this country that we're kind of blaming the Trump administration for their failures, which I agree are many, but you also have to look at Europe's numbers right now. They're also not doing the things right. Like they also opened indoor uh, facilities after they beat back the first wave. They did all sorts of things like, you know, they opened pubs, they opened indoor clubs. Um, they relaxed the mask wearing mandates. Like it's not just, there's a failure. I think a malaise, a way of not, confronting what we're facing that I think is not just our country it's you know most of Western Europe as well other countries are included and we need to figure out it, it's it's really tough because we're in a crisis yes and we need to fix the crisis but even when the crisis is over or when the election is over we need to realize that there's a lot more to fix right now than you know just the current thing we have to sort of sit back and say how do we get to this point 
and fix the conditions that got us to this point and not just say, all right, you know, we're over this crisis and, you know, we just want to relax for a bit because then we'll get hit again. But as you say, we are in this and a bit of a malaise. I mean, we're in this new surge, right? That's already broken daily case records from the summer. And at the same time, we're seeing reports of pandemic fatigue being a real thing, meaning people exhausted with coronavirus restrictions are are not motivated <laughs> to take some of the steps that are needed. Do you see that playing a big role? And, and does that worry you in terms of the trajectory of this recent surge? It really does worry me. It really um, is a big problem. And I want to uh, say something that I had a conversation with um, epidemiologist uh, Julia Marcus from Harvard this morning. We were um, talking about this. And one of the things, there are two things that are important to remind people. And one of them is this is going to end. Like there's three things. There's, this is going to end, pandemics end. Like there, there's sometimes you hear people like there's a lot of doom scrolling and uh, pandemics do end. That's just history. The second thing is it's going to kind of get worse before it gets better. And this is looking seasonal like most other coronaviruses, which is unsurprising. So that's the reality. But the third thing is there are many things we can do to make this short, painful term less worse. You know, it's not like we shouldn't say, you know, don't socialize, don't go out, don't do anything. We should be like, here's how to socialize safer, how to uh, let's look into the solutions, the rapid testing, the mass testing, um, try to set up our cities so that outdoor dining is a thing, trying to figure out more ways, like instead of gyms to do outdoor exercises, wherever weather is possible, as much as possible to get back as much of those core human needs as possible. Mm. I don't think, you know, just stay home for a few more weeks is going to work. That's not how life, I mean, it's, of course, to, to some degree, trying to prevent, you know, clusters is really important, but we have to be practical about it. We have to find ways to, um, you know, if it's work related, we have to find the money to pay people so they don't do the work. So there's a lot of these practical things. And I think even through the fatigue, I think people are really wanting to pull their weight and do stuff. And we haven't like we haven't gotten together as a society to try to do this collectively. And that's what we got to fix and say, all right, let's make this um, let's make this work as, uh, you know, with as little pain as possible. And just mobilize around that and keep telling ourselves this is going to end. We are talking with sociologist Zeynep Tufekci about COVID-19 and her recent writing for The Atlantic. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And you, our listeners, are with us. Let me go next to caller Amy in San Francisco. Amy, join us. Hi. Um, I've just noticed that in indoor and outdoor dining, when people are in the context of eating and drinking, even if they're not actively eating and drinking, so they've, they've like, you know, because you can't physically eat or drink while wearing a mask, people act like a mask is totally inappropriate or unnecessary in the entire context. So how worried is the doctor about um, walking by really tightly clustered outdoor dining scenarios where it's sort of like a street fair vibe where they've closed Valencia Street in San Francisco. There's tons of people, everyone's sort of laughing and shouting, but it is outdoors and, you know, people are unmasked. Right. Uh, Amy, thanks. So, um, so look, there's no zero risk anything. Like, there's no such thing. But I will tell you what one of the top aerosol scientists in the world, Lindsay Marr, told me about the running because I asked her the same thing and I've asked other aerosol scientists and the odds of getting enough of a virus dose to be infected while walking by in her view is so negligible that she doesn't worry about it and she's she's the top expert in much of this so if she doesn't worry about it I don't worry about it but if you pant in somebody's face you know, if you just go, you know, heavy breathing in somebody's face, I think you could absolutely have infections outdoors as well. But if you're just walking by the street, because, you know, the outdoors is really vast and you're there for 
like a tiny little second, that's not a big deal. On the other hand, like if you have, uh, I remember seeing a conga line um, early on with people holding a rope that kept them six feet apart. And that kind of tells you why it's misleading just to give people numbers. Because if you're in a conga line, you're just walking behind people, you're in their slipstream. So while I think outdoors is much safer, the thing I wouldn't want to do is be in somebody's slipstream because that's where their breath is coming, you know, behind you. You're constantly breathing it in. So uh, I would personally feel fine walking by any number of people. I wouldn't sit down and have them shot in my face <laughs> well, as long as this was outdoors. Well, Amy, thanks for the question. And, you know, we just have 30 seconds left, Zainab Tufekci, but you said pandemics end. And I wonder, is it like what the administration say that this won't, says that this won't end until there's a vaccine? Or do you think we could end it before a vaccine? So I think we could get it absolutely under control before a vaccine. Uh, look at Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, if we had sort of, I think the rapid testing has really been underused. Actually, it hasn't been used. Uh, and compared to the cost of the pandemic, I think that's something we should absolutely invest in, along with targeting super spreading. And we wouldn't end it, but we would get it into a state where we could get most of our life back while we waited for the vaccine, which, to be honest, is looking quite hopeful, you know, but we're talking about next summer for yes. the vaccine. There's stuff to do, low-hanging fruit that's waiting for initiative and leadership and financing that would give us a lot of our lives back. Such a good point. Well, Zainab Tufekci, thank you so much. So appreciate your ability to step back and see the forest for the trees and appreciate your optimism. Zainab Tufekci, associate professor. Me. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate it. At the School of Information and Library Science at UNC. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.